All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here tonight and to 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 present this uh, material and um, just so, so thankful uh, for this work and for, for Jonathan and, and for Eric and, and just appreciate all those that are listening. Uh, this sermon grew out of um, an invitation I had earlier in the year to speak where Cliff Goodwin is the preacher in Ironiton. And he said, um, our theme for our summer series is things the church needs to hear and just left it wide open. And I had in my mind what I wanted, what I thought I wanted to say. And then I began to work and, and add and replace and add and replace. And pretty soon I had an, an entirely new sermon uh, that didn't have anything to do with where I started. And I hope that this uh, will be helpful to everyone who hears it, uh, because these are some things that, you know, it, a number of years ago, I listened to I listened to uh, Brother G.K. Wallace speak on the matter of, you know, if if I could preach to the United Nations, I'd just preach a simple gospel sermon. I thought that was a great a great thought, um, and and I thought, you know, if I could preach any sermon right now, any sermon right now to Christians, uh, this would be the sermon that I would preach. And so, uh, with that in mind, we're going to look at five things the church needs to hear. And the first is that we must die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. The church needs to hear that we must die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. We live in a time where Christians are so busy with their, with their work, with their families, uh, with their recreation, that things of a spiritual nature not, not even thinking about the church, which obviously we should think about the church in this respect, but things of a spiritual nature, our prayer life, our, our Bible study, our meditation time, our, our family studies, all these things, all these things are, are suffering. Uh, and the, the root problem is we have not truly died to ourselves. You know, Luke said, or Jesus said, as recorded in Luke chapter 9, and in verse number 23, if any man will come after me, let him deny him or take up his cross, deny himself daily and or take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. For we judge thus that if one died for all, then all were dead and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so we see Paul says that the love of Christ through his, his gift of himself on the cross compels us to live or ought to, as Christians, ought to compel us to live for him. One of my favorite texts in this respect is John chapter 12. And in, well, look at verse 24 in particular. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I thought about three things in regard to this verse with, uh, with respect to what it means to die to ourselves. And I thought, you know, if a grain of wheat has to fall to the ground, and I, in my mind, I, I thought about the, 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 not just the first century, but even prior to that, that, that worship posture of, of prostrating oneself before uh, God. And, and, and the, the very idea is humility. 
you know, that grain of wheat falls to the ground and we must, you know, fall to the ground, humble ourselves uh, before the Lord. And then, then, so that's, you know, that's humility. And then we have to die, you know, that's fatality or mortality. Uh, that if, you know, that if we don't die, then we cannot bear fruit. And then Jesus says, but if it dies, you know, if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's the, to me, the matter of maturity. So there has to be humility. There has to be the recognition of mortality, and there has to be has to be maturity. Uh, if we want to truly live for Jesus, we could spend a lot of time even tonight. I won't do it, but we could spend a lot of time in uh, in John 15, 1 to 8, and speak about how we are to live and abide in the vine, and that, that Christ supplies everything for us that we might bear fruit uh, to the uh, honor or to the glory of the Father there in verse eight. And so, but if I could, if I could say anything to the church first and foremost, I would say that we must, we must die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. But then number two, I'd like for us to consider uh, Mark chapter eight and verse 15. Now, if I were going, if I were going to, um, if I were going to give you just a test, just like like kind of a word association type test. And I said, beware of the leaven of, and I would ask your know, church members, and by the way, I've, I've preached this sermon two or three places. I've, I haven't preached it at Burleson yet, uh, but I've preached this sermon two or three places. And, and in response to beware of the leaven, here's the two answers I get every time. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees or beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. But in Mark chapter 8 and verse 15, I think there's a leaven that is mentioned here that for us is far, far greater, a far greater danger than we might consider with regard to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus says there, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of Herod. And I've never heard anyone talk about the leaven of Herod. And, and I could not help but think that perhaps there is some connection now that Jesus is trying to establish uh, with his disciples that they need to be careful about their political associations, that there might be, there might be the, uh, the, the urge or, or maybe a desire or maybe a fear that of not pleasing the government or aligning oneself with the government in a way that is, is detrimental to the cause of Christ. And so I think about, you know, beware of the leaven of Herod. Be aware of aligning yourself with the, with the political forces at hand. And I'll just give you some examples of this. Think about, you know, what happened, what happened in the days? And look, I, I understand. I understand. The church went into apostasy, not in its entirety, but not the church in its entirety, but the church went into apostasy in a large way by the first two or three centuries um, in its existence. And then one of one of the things that that the church did at that time, the apostate church did, was that they aligned themselves with the Roman government. Whether we want to talk about aligning themselves with Constantine or or some other you know some other uh, a Roman ruler uh, down the road, which wouldn't be too much further down the road, but look what happened to the church when it and I I, I hate to use the term, I, I, well I'll just use this term when the church aligned itself 
uh, allied itself with the government. What you know, was that good for the church or was that bad for the church to align itself uh, with the government? And I think we can all admit, you know, we can look at the course of history that that the church has no business uh, uh, being aligned or allied with the government. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the government that was once an antagonist of the church then became the ally of the church. And, and what happened to the church? Well, then the church took on, uh, well, the, again, the apostate church took on the form of that government. I mean, you can, you can set up a, a, a pyramid of how the Roman government was set up, and you can set up another pyramid of how Roman Catholicism ended up, and those two pictures are exactly alike. And so, so it was a bad thing for it was a bad thing for the church to align itself uh, with the government. Um, and let me just say this, and I I wouldn't I don't want to be critical of anyone's prayers, you know. But you know, we pray a lot for our government to protect our freedoms. And look, look, you look over my shoulder right there. I've got a flag, and you look over this shoulder right here. I got I got two caps with the American flag on. I love my country. I love my country, and if, if I remember correctly, Eric uh, served uh, served our country honorably uh, in the military, and I'm thankful uh, for men uh, like him. And, I, and like I said, I I love I love my country, but but uh, we as Americans have bought into the idea that we need protection from the government uh, to do our Christian duties, and it's. It's rarely ever been the case that Christians could perform their, their sacred obligations with the help or the protection of the government. And you think about you know, what has happened to the church, you think about just in the last hundred years, what has happened to the church, you know, now that you know, now that we've 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 almost in many ways abandoned true Christianity and embraced some type of red, white, and blue patriotic Christianity. You know, what has that been good for the church or bad for the church? You know, where where does the Bible ever tell us to pray for pray for our freedom? Where does the Bible tell us you know to pray to be free uh, to worship or free from uh, uh, harm from our government? I, I don't find that. The only thing I find is that we're to pray for our leaders that we might be able to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness. First Timothy uh, chapter two. Now maybe that entails thinking overall that we, you know, we want the government to at least allow us to do, uh, you know, what we want to do, what we need to do, what we're commanded to do. But we do not need the protections of the government to, to fulfill our Christian obligations. You know? and, then on, and then on top of that, in, in addition, we're still in this same point. You know, think about as, as Christians, by and large, for some reason, we've got it in our minds that if we can just elect the right people and we can get the right people in government, then we can get the right people to get the right judges. And then when we get the right judges, we can fix America. You know, where did we ever get that idea? You know, I mean, let's just let's just be honest. Uh, you know, there aren't a handful of politicians anywhere in the federal government that give five cents worth of thought or concern for the American people. They're going to pay lip service to one side or the other. They're going to pay lip service to their constituents, uh, you know, the ones that they think will get them get them elected. But by and large, they do not care about us. They do not care about us. 
And, and we need to get that, you know, we kind of need to get that through our thick skulls that, that politicians don't care about us and, 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 and understand that we need to be about the business of doing the Lord's work and, and let the government take care of itself. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying we shouldn't support good causes, things of that nature. But we need to understand uh, we do not need the government nor its protection to do what God has commanded us to do. And so number two, I would say if, if I could tell the church anything, number two, I'd say beware of the leaven of Herod. Then number three, and this is kind of a tricky one, all right? So just, just stay with me. If I could tell the church anything, I would tell them that you must obey Jesus to be saved by grace, not saved by grace so that you can obey Jesus. And what I mean by that is, is that we need to be aware of the of the common religious errors that are uh, in America today, you know, across the board. Uh, you know, for example, the one I just mentioned that you must uh, obey Jesus to be saved by grace, not be saved by grace to obey Jesus. That's, in short, a refutation of, of Calvinism. Uh, but most of our brethren have no idea what Calvinism is. Uh, Calvinism's influence is on the rise. Uh, people and some of my brethren, uh, to their own shame, although I don't think they're ashamed, uh, have enough sense to be ashamed, they've embraced this gospel coalition and all the guys that are associated with gospel coalition. These guys are all hardcore right Calvinists. And, 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 and we, not that there's nothing to be learned from guys, for example, like Tim Keller or somebody like that, but, but some of our brethren have just bought into these guys hook, line, and sinker uh, to, the, to the detriment uh, of those brethren, to the detriment of the brethren to whom they preach. And, uh, and we, need, we, need, we need to be more discerning uh, about uh, where we get our information. But back to the primary point, most of our brethren cannot reasonably sit down and refute even a handful of the most common religious errors uh, that we, we might consider today, for example, Calvinism. And within that are our five tenets of Calvinism. Well, who can, you know, you know what Christian is there? And I, I'm not talking about the preachers. I'm not talking about the guys who've been to school preaching, whatnot, or guys who've been like me, didn't go to school preaching or, or uh, you know, just have a lot of experience. But, you know, how many rank and file members can sit down and, and coherently talk about total depravity or or unconditional election, or limited atonement, or irresistible grace, or once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints. You know, how many Christians can sit down and make a coherent argument against modern day miracles? Uh, who can, you know, make an argument against the doctrine of faith only? Uh, who can, you know, who can sit down and make an argument against the denominational concept of Christianity? And, you know, and, and just to be honest, one need only know a handful of verses, a handful of verses to, to deal with all of these doctrines. For example, um, you know, this, the idea that, that miracles are still being performed today. You know, I have what are, I have what are called go-to verses. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we we're at PTP two, three, four years ago. And I guess it'd be three or four years ago now. And, and uh, just out of the blue, I was, uh, talking with Glenn Colley and just out of the way, he said, hey, he goes, what's your go-to verse on the Ten Commandments? I said, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18. He goes, mine too. And uh, it, But my, the point is, 
if somebody wants to talk about the Ten Commandments, I'm going to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to start right there in verse 7, and I'm going to let the text teach what it teaches about the Ten Commandments. I could go to Romans 7, uh, 1 to 6, but, uh, but the point is, there's not a wide body of knowledge that's required to refute some of these common these common errors. Uh, but with regard to, for example, modern day miracles, there's one verse that you can go to in Acts 4 and verse 16, where th those religious leaders who rejected the teaching of the apostles, but had witnessed the miracle performed back as recorded in Acts 3, said, that a notable miracle has been performed by these men is manifest to everyone that is in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So, you know, there are three, there are three, we might say there are three parts or three uh, distinguishing characteristics of a true Bible miracle. First of all, it's notable. In other words, you know what was done. You know, not some Pat Robertson you know, somebody somewhere is being healed of a backache. You know, somebody somewhere has a tumor that's disappearing. You know, that's not a Bible miracle. That's not notable. Uh, these men knew what had happened. They knew exactly what had happened. They knew exactly who it happened to. And they knew when it happened. They knew where it happened. It was a notable miracle. And then secondly, it was a manifest miracle. In other words, it wasn't done, as Paul said uh, to Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. You know, these things were done out in the open, you know, when's the last time, you know, when's the last time some so-called faith healer went and emptied a hospital somewhere? You know, you know, the apostles healed, you know, thousands or at least hundreds or thousands of people. Jesus healed hundreds or thousands of people all at one time. You know, they brought him and says he healed them all. And so, you know, it was, but, but today's miracles are performed in a corner somewhere. You know, it's second, third hand information, you know, and, and, and nobody manages to record it on a cell phone. You know, I've been to Africa 14 times between 1999 and 2015. I made 14 trips to, to West Africa. All of them included Ghana. Another one included Liberia. Another one included Kenya. And I can tell you something, that in spite of all the things that those people do not have, they've all got cell phones. And every cell phone's got a camera. And every cell phone's got a video uh, recorder on it. And, you know, there's 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet and nobody can catch a miracle on a cell phone. You know, nobody can catch a, a, a guy's, uh, you know, a, a withered hand being restored. Nobody, you know, nobody can record a lame man or a dead man being raised. And and so it's, it's a manifest miracle. And then lastly, it's undeniable. So we cannot deny it. In other words, we know it and we know it happened and, and we'd be fools to try to deny that it happened. And so we see, you get one verse. There's one verse. If you just file that one verse away in Acts uh, 4 and verse 16, there's your go-to verse on modern miracles. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 5. There's your go-to text on the, on the Ten Commandments. You know, if I was going to have a go-to text on baptism, I'd leave Mark 16, 16 alone. I'd leave Acts 2, 38 alone. I'd go to Romans 6, 3 to 5. You know, th that way we, we take out all the word discussions. We take out all of the, the, the textual, uh, critical or critical uh, textual considerations. Take all that out of the way. Let's just go to Romans 6, 3 to 5 and see what the Bible has to say about baptism in that text. And, and, and so, you know, get you a go-to verse to deal with religious error. And again, there's only about a half a dozen. Now, of course, within Calvinism, there's five errors within Calvinism. All right, so I'll grant you that. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, but arguments about baptism, you know, once saved, always saved. Second Peter 2, 20 to 22. That's the only verse you need. Second Peter 2, 20 to 22. That's the only verse you need re to refute the idea of once saved, always saved. Again, baptism, Romans 6, uh, 3 to 5. Uh, you know, the one church. How about Colossians 1.18? He's the head of the body of the church. One head, one body, one church. Uh, and so, and so, and so what I'm trying to tell you is you don't need a, a wide body of knowledge or even a, a super deep body of knowledge to deal with the most common religious errors. And, and our brethren need to be preparing themselves to, to speak at, uh, for example, speak at the, the workroom, at, at, at the employment, at the break room table. Because look, People that are engrossed or enmeshed in religious error are going to talk about their error. They're going to talk about their church. They're going to talk about what happened last Sunday morning. They're going to say things like, "Oh, the Lord really showed out last Sunday." Uh, you know, the spirit was the spirit was alive last Sunday, and and we've got to be prepared to to enter those conversations because those people are going to open the door for us. But so many of our folks, they just want to sit back and they don't want to say anything. We, I don't want to create trouble or that, you know, I don't know enough. You know what? If you don't know enough, you ought to be ashamed. If you've been a Christian any amount of time and you don't know enough to, 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 to refute some of the basic errors that are prevalent in, in our society, you ought to be ashamed. There's more Bibles in this country than probably the rest of the world combined. Uh, access to the Bible, access to Bible tools is, is practically unlimited. And we are grossly ignorant uh, of the scriptures as a people. And so we need to get back, get back to studying our Bibles and, and learning how to teach the truth and refute error. But then number four, if I could tell you, uh, if I could tell the church one thing or five things, this is number four, and that is do your job. Do your job. I don't know where the phrase do your job came from when it got popular. I think that this is me. I think the first time I started hearing it a lot was right after the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Um, and some of you, if you're football fans, you may remember that. And even if you're not a football fan, you may remember that, that, that it was at the end of the game. Uh, the Seahawks were were inside, I think, the two-yard line. All they had to do was score a touchdown. There was only about a minute to go, and uh, and the Patriots or the Seahawks ran a play that the Patriots had been practicing against time and time and time and time again until they figured out a way to foil that play. In other words, to, to break it up, and, uh, and when they lined up, the Patriots knew what was – they knew what was coming. And they were prepared. And everybody on that side of the football did their job. And a little-known player by the name of Malcolm Butler from West Alabama University in Livingston, Alabama, just dead south of me, about 100 miles. Malcolm Butler intercepted the pass from uh, Russell Wilson, and the, the Patriots ended up winning the Super Bowl. But it all boiled down to somebody doing his job. And in fact, it took two men to do their job in that particular case. The other defensive player had to make a play that enabled Butler to make the play he knew he needed to make, and it all paid off in, in, in a Super Bowl, in a Super Bowl victory. But do your job. 
And, and, and I just think, you know, how many Christians don't even have any idea what their job is? They don't even, they don't know, they don't even know what to do, you know? And, and, and so, you know, and, and why is that? You know, maybe, maybe some of the problem lies with us as, as elders and, 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 and we're not challenging people. We're not encouraging them to, 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 you know, to contribute to the work and the life and the growth of the local church. But, but let me just say this. No war can be won without foot soldiers. You know, you know, you can sit back, you know, you can sit back and bomb the enemy from afar. You can have the generals, you can have a few, but but no war is won without foot soldiers, and no spiritual war is won without what well, let's say Lord, the Lord's army's foot soldiers. Um, I was reminded of the fact that you know we cannot pay someone else to do our job. You may recall, if you know a little bit about history, that the Civil War was called the rich man's war and the poor man's fight, you know, because those that were wealthy could could pay somebody to take their place and go and and, and fight the war. But there is no there is no such plan uh, in the army of the Lord. It's not the rich man's war and the poor man's fight. Um, and then, as we think about again, thinking about this this idea or this concept of conflict um you know i'll go back to the civil war you may recall that you know when some of the early battles were fought people had picnics i believe it was the 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 first battle of manassas bull run you know people showed up and had picnics they were just going to watch the festivities they just they thought well you know the north you know the 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 the, the boys in blue are just going to go down here and they're going to mop up the boys in gray and this thing's going to be over in no time and, and we'll just go on about our happy lives and it didn't work out that way and it became a, a long protracted a war and, and people had to make a lot of great sacrifices in other words the the excitement of the war wore off when we figured out that this was going to be a long protracted uh, engagement and so motivation enthusiasm excitement you know those things can only carry you so far. You've got to be, you've got to be committed to doing your job. In an ancient Chinese book, The Art of War, it's found this statement. Every battle is won before it is fought. Every battle is won before it is fought. Uh, uh, Vince Lombardi said, the will to win is not nearly so important as the will to prepare to win. In other words, you don't you don't win on Sunday in the NFL. You don't win on Sunday in college football. You don't win on Saturday. You know you win on Monday through Friday, as you prepare as you prepare to to engage um, the opposing team. And you know wars are not won on the battlefield so much as they are won before the 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 sides engage. In other words, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of preparation that goes in. And then the, the, the battle is, is joined, and, and the result is of those who are prepared the best. And in thinking about, you know, do your job, let's just, I want to think for a moment about the idea of, of the talents. Now, you know, in, in Matthew 25, there's the parable of the talents. And, and the, the, the Bible is clear that the master gave each servant a number of talents according to his individual ability. And, and, you know, we've, of course, taken the word talent and as it has evolved through the years and, and we've made the talent the ability. And, and, and the New Testament, the talent was not the ability. The talent was a weight of money, a weight or a unit 
of money. And so we've taken the idea of talent to mean an ability. And then we think, well, I'm just a little old one talent person. And, and, and I, you know, my talent's not worth very much, but if we understand what's actually going on in this text, it'll help us understand how important our abilities are. Again, a talent was a unit of weight. And as, as best I can tell, uh, for example, you, you, if you read in the book of First uh, Kings that uh, Solomon, Solomon brought in 666 talents of gold every year. Well, a talent was about 57.75 pounds. So he figures 50, you know, basically 58 pounds times 666 is the amount of gold every year that Solomon brought in uh, to the treasury. A talent of silver was about 50, again, 57.75 pounds. Now, at today's market value, a talent of silver is worth $25,000. $25,000. So, so we need to get this idea out of our head that I'm just a little old one talent Christian and my talent doesn't amount to much because that's not what this text teaches. That's not what it teaches. I mean, think about it. what this what this man did was he gave one servant twenty five thousand dollars. He gave another servant fifty thousand dollars and he gave another servant one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. And he went away and he expected them to do something with what they had received. And, and the idea that you know, I'm just a little one talent Christian does not does not match the text as Jesus revealed it. That's why, look. If the talent wasn't very much, why did the master say, at the very least, you should have put it in the bank that I could have at least drawn interest on it uh, during the time that I was gone? You know, if a talent wasn't very much, you know, in our minds, if it's just, a, I'm just a little old one talent Christian, my talent's worth about $5. Well, look, I understand you put $5 in the bank and in a year you're going to have $5 and five cents. Now, I understand a small amount of money is not going to create a lot of interest. But if you put $25,000 in the bank, you know, at least that interest measures up to something even, you know, even in today's market where there's not a lot of interest being paid on, you know, on savings accounts. But, but the man said, you should have put this in the bank because it was enough that you could have drawn a significant amount of interest on it by doing absolutely nothing, but you buried it, you buried it in the ground. And so as we think about this parable of the talents and, and being a one talent person, we need to think that talent is represented by $25,000. What would you do? You know, what could you do? You know, if somebody dropped $25,000 in your lap and said, you know, go to work with this, you know, do something with this. Again, you know, at least, you know, we would have enough sense to put it in the bank. And so it was a significant, in other words, one talent was extremely significant. And, and so, you know, regardless of whatever you think your talent is, you need to understand, and maybe more than one, you know, but too many Christians think that the Lord's filled his church with one talent people. Um, whatever your talent is, whatever your ability is, you need to understand, you need to understand how valuable that talent is you know, to the work of the kingdom.
look, if your talent is nothing more than, than, than making a, you know, making a pie or, or baking a cake, you know, think about, you know, how many people have been, have accepted invitations to, to attend worship services by somebody, you know, they moved into the community and, and some, you know, some Christian sister baked them a cake, baked them a pie, baked them a plate of cookies. Maybe somebody in their family was sick and some Christian baked them, you know, baked them a casserole, baked them, you know, made them, you know, some chicken soup and, and carried it. And how many, how many souls have been won to Christ through, you know, through, you know, chicken noodle soup, chocolate pie, you know, red velvet cake, it, 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 you know, so what does that mean? That means that my talent's very valuable, valuable because one soul is more valuable than the whole world. And we can think about how many souls have been brought to Christ through just a very simple exercise of someone doing their job. And, and you don't need to worry about what your talent is or how it compares to somebody else's talent. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 12 that, that we are judged uh, on our ability uh, and not uh, of what we have and not according to what we do not have. In other words, God just expects us to do with what we have. Uh, Matthew 4 and verse 40, or 10 and verse 42, you know, whoever gives a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple shall by no means lose his reward. You know, Mark 9, or Mark 14, you know, the woman who broke the alabaster box, you know, she has done what she could. Uh, Mark 12, 41 to 44, the widow's might. Uh, I think that's the M-I-G-H-T. Not the M-I-T-E, but it's the widow's might, the M-I-G-H-T, because she was mighty in her sacrifice and in her faith. And so, number four, I'd tell the church, do your job. And then lastly, I'd tell you this, and, and, and this, this won't take long, and, but this is the last point. God is not interested in your excuses. God is not interested in your excuses. God wasn't interested in Adam and Eve's excuses. You know, they they brazenly disobeyed the voice of the Lord. And Adam, you know, God said, Adam, did you eat of the fruit I told you not to eat? What Adam do? Well, he blamed Eve and he blamed God. He said, this woman that you gave me, gave to me and I did eat. So what did Eve do? Well, she blamed a serpent. God said to her, what have you done? She said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then the poor old serpent didn't have anybody to blame me. Of course, I'm speaking facetiously. I'm not saying the poor old serpent, but you know what I mean. Adam blamed Eve and God. Eve blamed the serpent and the serpent didn't have anybody to blame. But God was not interested in their excuses. Uh, you know, Moses and Aaron, you know, when, when the people gave that gold to Aaron and he fashioned that calf, and, uh, you know, God was not interested in Aaron. You know, of all the pathetic excuses, I threw the gold in a fire and out came this calf. You know, the dog ate my homework is even a better excuse than that. And, and I know because that's at least possible because my dogs just chewed up some of my mail that, that got left at my house the other day, including, one, including a bill. I mean, it got chewed all to pieces. But you know what? I still got to pay that bill. I got I got to find out how much I owe, and I still got to pay it. I'm I'm not gonna tell the hospital the dog the dog ate my bill, even though he actually ate my bill. God is not interested in our excuses. God's not interested. Wasn't interested in Saul's excuses in First Samuel 15 when when he 
uh, uh, you know, when he claimed foolishly, I have, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, really? What is this? I, what is this? I hear in my ears, this, this, this oxen, these, what do I hear? So, so oh, well, it wasn't me. It was the people. The people wanted to keep the best so that they could sacrifice it to the Lord. And Samuel said, does the Lord have as much delight in, in, uh, in sacrifice as he does in obedience? He said, to listen or to hearken is, is better than the fat, uh, and to obey is better than the fat you know, of rams. You know, to, to hearken is better than sacrifice, and to obey better than the fat of rams. God was not interested in Adam and Eve's excuse. He wasn't interested in Aaron's excuse. He wasn't interested in Saul's excuse. And he's not interested in any excuse uh, that we might offer up um, uh, to him for our failure to do our job. And so those are the five things. If I could, if I could tell the church anything uh, in, in one sitting, I'd say, number one, we must die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. Number two, we must beware of the leaven of Herod. Number three, we must learn and or study and learn the scriptures and learn how to properly apply them. Number four, we must learn to do our job. And then number five, God is not interested uh, in our excuses. And I hope that this lesson has been an encouragement to you, that, that it's admonished you, exhorted you, uh, made you want to, to serve the Lord uh, to a greater degree, you know, starting right now uh, than, than you've ever uh, done it before. And, you know, and if we can help you in any way uh, in that respect, you know, you can, you can comment on the thread. You can, uh, Jonathan will be watching those things and I'm sure that he will share those. Uh, he'll share those with Eric. And so, you know, if there's anything that we can do to help you, uh, we would certainly uh, make ourselves available uh, to that end. And I, but I hope I hope this has been uh, a blessing to you and an encouragement. And let's close this session out uh, with a brief word of prayer. Then Jonathan and Eric will be back uh, to help close out the program tonight. Let's bow together. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, the time we've had together to study. We're thankful for your word and how it encourages us, how it admonishes us, uh, how it builds us up. Well, we pray that we'll be built up in the most holy faith but by, by the things that we have studied tonight and that we might be more faithful and able and diligent servants uh, in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.